Okay, hello there. Uh, welcome back to another Facebook Live. Um, I am trying out a microphone today, so let me know if you can hear me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how we sensitize ourselves to the other and how we connect with others. So both of these, one is how, how can the other person, the people who are in our society who um, are treated as outsiders, um, how can we sensitize ourselves to the other, um, allowing them to be uh, agent, a disruptive agent of change in our lives? And how do we create spaces where we um, can unify uh, in our differences. So that's that's the subject matter here. I'm only going to obviously it's a Facebook live, so we're only going to um, you know look at this for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, if you are interested in the subject, I'm going to be doing a whole seminar on it, a two-hour lecture, probably in a couple of months. Um, some of you will know that I've been doing these online lectures, and I'm planning on doing them every couple of months for at least a year, probably more. Uh, they're free, you can donate, but um, that you can, once you sign up, you'll get the previous one, you'll get the next one, and we've got loads of people. I mean, we have over, we've got 1,100 signed up for this next one, and we've had to cut it off because the technology um, <laughs> only lets a certain number, and uh, otherwise I have to pay a lot more. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that uh, probably for next month because, as I say, we've got uh, so much interest in these. Um, but yeah, for now, um, I want to talk about this subject in, in relation to parotheology. Uh, many of you have been following my work for ages. Um, well, I don't actually know how many of you, but increasingly in the last year or two, um, you know, there have been people who have followed me since How Not to Speak of God, and, and they know my work well, and I'm sure many of you are in that position. But of course, there are also more and more people who don't know the work. Um, a lot of people who have connected to me, perhaps through other podcasts, other writers. Um, and uh, so this is a li little bit of an introduction. Uh, but in parotheology, there is theory and there's technology. Uh, all disciplines kind of have their theory and their technology. The, you know, the, the technology of biology could be seen as surgery. Uh, the technology of chemistry might be, uh, you know, creating medicines and poisons. Um, the technology of mathematics can be seen in the, the construction of buildings, construction of bridges. The, the technology of psychoanalytic theory is, of course, the theatre of the clinic, the couch, transference, resistance, etc. And the, the technology of theology is liturgy. And I've done Facebook Lives about that in the past, so you can go back and look at those. So there is a, there is a technology to parotheology. There's the theory, um, some of you will have listened to my seminars, will have read the books, but there's also a practice. And I use the term technology because philosophy used to be seen as a technology, um, a technology of the self. Um, you know, it was something that was designed to transform us, to change us. It was a set of rituals and practices that hopefully sensitized us to the other, um, helped us widen our perspectives, um, helped us take responsibility for our existence, to look at things that we'd rather turn away from, to confront the truth and to let the truth confront us. 
So in paratheology, the technology is split into two. There is what's called transformance art and decentering practices. I want to take these both very quickly. Um, they'll do the first, which is decentering practices. Um, every spirituality, as I say, has technology. Uh, you know, whether it's yoga, whether it's meditation, um, whether it's prayer. You know, these are different um, practices that come out of different uh, spiritual, theological perspectives. And in paratheology, uh, one of the things that's important about it is it's developed, uh, so far we've developed four technologies, four practices out of it. And I call these decentering in a playful way, but, uh, you know, because we talk about centering practices. Uh, but interestingly, in, in our world, we often grow and stretch more when we're decentered rather than, we're, than when we're centered. I mean, of, of course, there's the Copernicus. The Copernican revolution was a decentering revolution. This minority voice that said, we are not the center of the universe. We're not even the center of our own galaxy, uh, but we revolve around the sun. That decentered us, kind of literally in the universe. Uh, then there's Darwin. You know, Darwin's discovery was a decentering. We thought we were something special, the pinnacle of creation, fundamentally different from everything else around us. And then this insight that decentered us, we're an animal. Uh, also, Freud. Uh, you know, before Freud, most people thought that the ego was the center of the self. The consciousness was in control, that we could think correctly and if we had the right idea we could give ourselves to that and act rationally and we were rational animals. Uh, but of course the Freudian insight, whether you go with other stuff that Freud said, the basic insight has, has permeated everything and that is that the ego and consciousness is not the centre but actually there are unconscious forces at work that mean we act irrationally and in ways that we, we don't even understand. So each of these, even actually, I mean, I, I don't know much about exercise, uh, but I've been told, might not be true, but that you know, when you exercise, it's, it's actually breaking down your muscle, you're causing tears and you know, all of that, and that's, that's how you grow. So in paratheology, decentering practices are a form of this. They're a form of throwing us off always in relation to the other. Um, now, I'll, I'll just outline them very briefly. Um, most of you will know what these are. But there is the Last Supper, the Evangelism Project, Atheism for Lent, and the Omega Course. The Last Supper, very quickly, 12 people meet in an upper room. I mean, it doesn't have to be an upper room, and it can be 15 people, but you get what I'm saying. A few people gather around a table and we invite someone who we likely disagree with, uh, somebody who maybe represents a minority in our community. It could be a sex worker, it could be somebody from the Islamic community, the humanist society, you know, whatever. We invite them to come, we put them in the seat of Christ symbolically. We listen to what they have to say, we talk together over food and wine, and playfully it's called the Last Supper because if we don't like what they say, it's their Last Supper. Which again is a little play on the idea that you remember what we did with Christ, the bringer of truth, where we killed him. Um, now the idea is you do one of those nights, and it's just a fun evening, but if you do one of those nights every month for a, for a year, you will be decentered, 
you will start to question your own views. You'll be thrown um, into it's sometimes turmoil because your whole way of constructing the world will be challenged. You see, there's basically four general ways that we encounter the other. Uh, the first, when, when, well, the four different things that we try to do when we encounter the other. The first is um, uh, consumption. We try to consume them. We, we, we want to make them part of our social body. Think of a child that picks up something foreign, something on the ground, puts it in her mouth. If it tastes okay, she'll swallow it and that becomes part of her body. So when we meet someone who's got strange practices and weird beliefs that we disagree with, we try to, in a sense, bring them into our social body, like the Borg in uh, you know, Star Trek or whatever. Now, if that doesn't work, we do what the child does, is she'll spit the foreign object out of her mouth. If we cannot take the other and make them into a clone of ourselves, we'll often try to get rid of them, put them out behind a wall, put them somewhere else, get rid of them, get them out of society. The third um, is toleration, where we often deal with the other's otherness by saying, well, listen, let's just not talk about it. You keep your weirdness to yourself. I'll keep my, you know, my views to myself and we'll get along. And then fourthly, there is this idea of, you know what, beneath all our differences, there is an ocean that we all draw from. Sure, we all have different streams, but those streams come from the same source. So in a way, we're all right. We're all going the right direction. We're all worshiping the same thing. Now, I don't like any of those, uh, because in all of them, I'm right. In the first three, I'm right and you're wrong. In the fourth, hey, we're both right, everything's wonderful, right? It, all four of them take away the truly devastating element of the other. And that is not that they are other to us, but that they can expose our otherness to ourselves. In other words, when I start to see myself through the other's eyes, I realize that my beliefs and practices are weird. At first I think they're weird and I'm just right. You know, the way I see the world is just the correct way and anything that deviates from that is basically a bit bizarre. But then I briefly glimpse myself through the other's eyes and I go, oh my goodness, I'm a weirdo, right? The way we raise kids, the way I think about politics, the way we think about the world is a bit bizarre. And we try to protect ourselves from that at all costs. So the Last Supper and all the decentering practices are based on this principle of the other decentering us, of us seeing ourselves through the other's eyes. So that brings me to the evangelism project. The evangelism project is where we go to be evangelized by other communities. Right? Now again, we're going to people who might be considered outsiders to us, whoever us is, whoever we are. Um, but the evangelism doesn't happen when you say go to the humanist society or the Islamic community and say, you know, what do you believe? You know, you might be evangelized by that. But the evangelism project is about saying that the second part of the night is when we ask, what do we look like to you? You know, let me see myself through your eyes. What's it like encountering, say, the Christian community, if it's a Christian community? What, what's it like encountering the Christian community here in, in America, here in Los Angeles? You know what? And then you see yourself through the other's eyes and you're decentered. 
and hopefully you're challenged to be evangelized, to become a better person, to become more human, to fight for justice, to fight for, for the good, and to see how you or I are implicated in things that we didn't know we were implicated in. Because that's the problem. The problem is we all create pollution. It's just like a factory making products. The factory doesn't necessarily mean to make some pollution, but this pollution comes out, it rains down somewhere else. When that community makes that pollution uh, uh, manifest, it brings it up to the surface and says to the factory owners, your, your product is creating a poison. Well, then the factory owners have a choice. Either they say, oh, I'm really sorry, we didn't mean to, we're going to make changes. Or they go, we don't care. Right? But either way, they're exposed for what they are. In the same way, we create pollutions that maybe we don't mean in our beliefs and our ideas. And when we are confronted with those pollutions, we'll either go, whoa, yeah, actually, I'm sorry. I'm really glad that you brought that up. That's painful, but I've got to do something about that. Or we go, I'm not going to listen. I don't care. Um, so the Evangelism Project is about that. Uh, the third is Atheism for Lent that's coming up actually, you can sign up for that next month. Um, that's where we listen to the outside voice to religion, where we spend 40 days over Lent reading the greatest critiques of religion, not to judge them but to let them judge us. And by the way, I mean sacred and secular religion, because there's I think lots of secular religions. Um, and so this, this pure, atheism is like this purifying fire that we allow to decenter us. And I think it will decenter us whether we're theists, atheists, or agnostics. <laughs> um, and then there is, oh, and if you want to know more about that, look up my lecture when atheism isn't atheist enough. That actually atheism, I think, is important even for those of us who identify as atheist, as well as those of us who identify as theist. And then there is the Omega course. And the Omega course is a play on the Alpha course, if you know what that is. The Alpha course is like this, this um, weekly event you go to, and it's kind of like an introduction to Christianity. Uh, it's a kind of a way in. So the Omega course is playfully like 12 weeks an exit to Christianity, or at least an exit to religion. So it actually has the same themes of the Alpha course. Like it looks at what does the crucifixion mean, for example. But instead of saying there's one answer to that, we try to listen to the heterodox voices with, within our tradition, the other within Christianity. What are the other voices? And we try to let, listen to those various voices so that we're decentered in our own views and hopefully see how theology is a much rich, richer and deeper tradition than it sometimes um, you know, seems and appears. So those are the decentering practices. And very briefly, the point of them is to see the other as a divine agent of chaos, able to decenter us in a way that will actually cause us to see difficult things, make difficult changes, and hopefully be a more uh, um, sensitive and a more radical uh, 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 agent in, of change within society. That's that. Now, the only thing about that is that on its own can be problematic. Because in that sense, like, you know, there is no kind of in, in these decentering practices, there is no encountering the other and saying, you know, 
there is something that we share. A lot of it is about saying, well, no, I'm not going to try to consume you. I'm not going to spit you out. I'm not going to tolerate you. I'm not going to say that beneath all of our differences, we're all the same. The no to all of my yeses um, in a productive way. But then this brings me to the other technology, which is called um, tra uh, transformance art. Transformance art sounds, transformance art sounds like the opposite when you, you hear it, because in transformance art, it's much more influenced by existentialism, which is the idea that yes, we have fundamental historical differences, and you know it's very difficult to. Um, you know, identify with people who have very different experiences of the world. But then existentialism says, but there is something shared in existence. And, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre famously used the example of a waiter in Paris, this Parisian waiter, who so thinks that he's a waiter, like he literally thinks he's a waiter. He's doing everything so beautifully, so precisely. He's acting exactly like, like, an, like an actor acting a waiter would be. It's like when you go to Brooklyn um, and everybody is so hipster, it's like, it's like you're in a movie set, right? They're not just hipsters. It's like, it's like, it's like they're more hipster than you could, this is the last time I was in Brooklyn anyway. It just felt like, oh my goodness, I'm on a movie set. People are acting hipsters, right? Because if, if you think you're a hipster, you are, in Sartre's words, acting in bad faith. Because as a human being, you can never be reduced to some objective identity, right? You're always what's existing, which means standing out. You're condemned to freedom, Sartre says. There is something about existence that means that although we have identities, we're never reducible to them. We're able to reimagine ourselves, change, etc., etc., And that we often try to flee from this. And, you know, Sartre calls this bad faith. So this other dimension brings me to this idea in transformance art of suspended space, where we performatively enact the eschaton, which means we pretend for an hour in the week. We go to the space and pretend that there is no Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We somehow allow those identities to just, they're still there, but we allow them to be seen in some sort of like uh, contingent way, we encounter the other. Now, I don't think that this, this has nothing to do with saying that beneath, we're all the same and all of that, but it's simply saying things like, to be human is to experience trauma. You know, trauma is part of human, to experience lack, to experience doubt, to experience, in the existential words, uh, to experience yourself as transcending yourself. Which brings me to this comic book. Because I think this is a great example of what I'm talking about. Um, I, I got on, I'm not a big comic book guy or anything, but my friend Jay Baker told me about this comic book because it's basically a British version of Batman and Robin, right? It's a bit sad looking called Knight and Squire, right? So obviously the knight is like Batman and the squire is like Robin. And um, it's actually very funny. I just got this today. And um, this, first, this first one is about, uh, it's a setup. And everybody's basically like, rubbish versions of the American superheroes. So there's like a Joker character and he's about 60. He loves the Joker. He's got the makeup on, all of that. But he just doesn't like to commit crimes. He just feels a bit bad. He thinks it's tasteless. 
and you've got like they're all talking about Superman and how he never comes to visit. They would love Superman to come over and say hi, right? All of that. But in this first edition, it's all set around this bar called um, time, time in a Ball. So there's the bar, Time in a Ball. And this bar is interesting because there is a magic truce around it um, created by Merlin the Magician that means nobody can fight. So the, all the villains and the heroes all go there for drinks and they chat and all of that, right? So outside they're fighting and it's all chaos. But when they go to this bar, time in a bottle, that's the place where they encounter each other outside of their, you know, identities as villain and hero. And, um, you know, the, the whole thing comes around because once somebody breaks the spell and it all becomes chaos and they kind of fight to get this back. And you can't, you can't tail each other, so you can't have fights when you leave because as soon as you leave the bar, you get dropped somewhere else in the city. So you're there, there's all the villains and the heroes, and there's one guy in particular who doesn't know whether he's a hero or a villain, and so he's in the bar trying to work that out. Right? So this is the kind of the, the basic notion of the, of the comic book. And there's a good line in it actually where um, uh, one, of the, one of the people says tonight, whenever there's a bit of a fight going on, because the spell's been broken, says, what are you doing? You're treating these villains almost like they're, almost like they're, they're human, right? Almost like they're human. But that's the kind of point of this bar and time in a ball, is briefly you encounter the humanity of the other. A humanity that, that you share. So the idea is that the bar, in a sense, humanizes people. And in fact, the guy who's trying to work out whether he's a hero or a villain, at the end of the experience, decides to be a hero. Right? Now, it's not that the everything's in London is the time in a ball. No, that's the point. The point is only for an hour of your week. I think it's a Thursday night, they all go to the pub. The Thursday night, they go to the bar, they have a drink, um, they talk about life and the problems of being a hero or a villain and all of that. And then they go out and then they, they do their thing. Some people are like awful and have to be fought and, and some people are good. The difference but now is you've met the person in the bar. So even though they're evil, you know they're doing some bad things, you know they're a human. You've experienced their humanity in some brief flimsy way. So when you're fighting with them, you're no longer fighting them because they are some monster. You're fighting a human being. And that means that you have to be more careful. And it's actually funny because Knight, um, he's like Batman in this way. He doesn't kill people. And I think it's partly because he sees the humanity even in the villains. In fact, one of the villains at the end, the main body in this, uh, he says to him, you know, you need some time to reflect on life and to reflect on what matters. And you're gonna do that in jail. And then he says, next time I catch you outside of this bar. So he even lets him go. <laughs> but he says, but you know what, if I catch you out there doing bad stuff, I'm gonna put you in jail. Now, there's, some, there's a problem with that on its own. And I think there's a problem with trans, uh, decentering practices on its own. But what I'm interested in, why I kind of develop these two, is I think that they live in tension with each other. That we experience the other, we allow the other to decenter us, to challenge us, to be the instrument of transformation in our lives, the agent of change in our lives. Um, 
the instrument, the, the agent who brings us uh, to conversion in our lives and challenges us to fight for justice in the world. But then there are these spaces where we encounter each other and we see the humanity of everybody, just briefly, just in these performative moments, these suspended spaces, so that when we go out to really fight for justice, and to fight for the poor, the oppressed, to, to give a voice to the voiceless, to lend, to, 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 to try to help lift up those who have been bowed down, or to see how we've been implicit in silencing others, all of that stuff, in doing that, we also have a space where we encounter the other. And that's what I think, you know, at its best, a liturgical space can do, can bring Republicans and Democrats, say, together. And for one hour, you sit together. You sensitize each other to the face of the other. Manuel Levinas says, the face of the other says, do not murder me. So you look at the face of the other and it screams out, do not murder me, do not kill me, do not use me and abuse me and leave me by the side of the road. You experience the humanity of the other. And then when you leave, yes, we fight. Yes, we fight hard for what we believe is good and just and true. And we do what we need to do. But there's something about the humanity of the other we fight with that remains with us because of the trans because of the suspended space that we can never quite do away with. We hear the cry of the other as we enter into a conflictual relation with the other. Okay, so there's there's just a few thoughts I wanted to do on, on the technology of of power of theology, and I say the decentering practices and transformance art. Let's see if you've got any questions and then I'll let you go. Um, let's see. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, Barnabas says, uh, what do you think about the idea that the concept of the other is an illusion, only subjective? I mean, what I, you know, there's two extremes. And, and nobody really fits on either of these extremes in terms of first-rate thinkers, right? But one extreme is like the other, you know, exists and the other is other and we can never know the experience of the other. We can never, you know, walk in the shoes of another. We ultimately, not even like different races or different genders or sexualities, but, but at an extreme, anybody, even within our own communities, we are monads, we are atoms that in a sense are cut off from everybody else so the other is other yeah and at the other extreme would be that's very you know either because of biology or history uh, or both um, on the other side you some people might go oh yeah there's no difference we're all human beings which kind of like is like oh yeah yeah you know let's don't worry about real historical differences etc etc you know um we're all we're all the same now in truth everything kind of fits somewhere in the middle, but some go further that way, some go further the other way. Uh, I'm very drawn to the existential approach, which is to take seriously the other indifference, but, but also to say that there is something about existence, human existence, where there is a shared trauma and shared, uh, and by trauma I mean lack, the shared lack of being human that comes up in terms of doubts and unknowing. Now, it always looks different in terms of different communities and different histories, but there's something about being a creature of language that means that we have to wrestle with um, anxiety, basically. 
And so in that sense, the other, um, the other, there is something shared. So that's, that's my, my at attempt to have my cake and eat it. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, people are making good comments and stuff like that, but not many questions that I can see. Sometimes, by the way, I miss the questions. And then I go back later and I see all these good questions, but I think that's probably because they've been put in after, after I've left, maybe. Um, okay. Jim um, <laughs> says, thanks, Peter. I liked your squirrel story you told last summer in Westwood. But, oh, the, I couldn't even, Pat, I forgot all about that story. Is that the one, um, it's an old one. Uh, <laughs> where Sunday school teacher says um, what eats nuts climbs trees and has brown fur and one of the kids puts their hand up and says Mr. Mr. I know the answer is Jesus but it sure sounds like a squirrel yeah I forgot all about that one yeah that's that's a good one I might use I'm doing pints and parables in LA in a couple of days I think I'll use that one um, da, da, da. Uh, Biz Richardson says, have you ever had a last supper with kids or youth present? You know, I haven't, um, but that's just contingent. That's just because, uh, you know, the, my age and, you know, all of that. I think it would be amazing to do this and to do that. If you're a youth worker or you work with young people, I think that would be fascinating. Because the truth is, I would say that young people... It's not people think, oh, young people are about questioning and all of that, and they are, they can be, but also being young, it's about questioning and differentiating from your parents. But often that means a very strong solvent, adhesive to groups. And so sometimes, although you're questioning one set of allegiances, what you're doing is you're literally going to another, which I guess means it's a really good opportunity to try to break that cycle. So instead of, you know, you're, you're loyal to your family and then you're loyal to your friend group is a moment where you kind of begin to break open that, that very idea of I identify myself in a community and I am wholly part of that community. You know, I say what Saar or, you know, Kierkegaard might call bad faith. Um, and, and I do want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, to do these things, to do last suppers, they're so easy to do, to do advances and projects. I'm actually working with my friend Jennifer to create packs that will help people actually know, set these up and do them themselves. They're just suggestions, there's various ways to do these things, but I realise, you know, some people go like, I'd like to do a last supper, you know, like, and they, they want some advice, and the advice can be things like, what venues have worked for you? I mean, I've done this for 10, 15 years. Like, what's a good venue? What's a good dinner to have? You know, you know how, how much should somebody talk? How much should we charge? You know, like, should, should it be sandwiches, and, or should it be a three-course meal? And like, all those little things that, you know, I kind of know but don't think about. So I'm making a pack that just, you know, gives the things that I've learned over the years from doing these, but don't wait for the packs, because my goodness, if you're waiting for me to do something, you'll be waiting a long time. They are being worked on, but just go out and do them, and then tell me how they go. Um, last Supper was, uh, yeah, Roger told me the Last Supper there. The Last Supper was the first one I ever did. That ran five, six years before I set up Icon. Um, and I remember this minister, a good guy, who said to me, he said, Pete, I don't think you'll find 12 people who would want to do that in the whole of the Queen's University where I was studying. 
Um, and yet, no, it was easy. It was easy. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I find like at least 12 people, usually it was 15 people, and sometimes it was bigger, um, who wanted to come around the table and be decentered. Um, which is for me, I mean, this is where I'm, I agree with Karl Barth and his early stuff, that actually there's something fundamental about being decentered within the, uh, the gospel narratives. There's something about putting yourself under, under critique that, that is key. Um, so yeah, the, but they're fun, that's great. And I recommend this, so I'll say this and then I'll go whatever. Although mind you, you don't have to stay anyway. I'm always worried about your time, but hey, you're gonna go off anyway. I can't lock the doors exactly on you. Um, you know, if you do 12 Last Suppers in a year, um, you would maybe do three with a guest in a row, and then the fourth one, just talk about the last three guests. So you have a meal and you don't invite anybody. So that means three, six, nine, nine guests in the year. And out of those nine guests, maybe three of them are people that are in the group who in a sense represent um, kind of a marginal voice of some kind. So then suddenly it's not nine people, it's six people you have to find. And you know, maybe you want somebody has a nice house and wants to, wants to do it there and, and you just, you know, you all get together and, and you run these once a month. And the only thing I would say is, I would say that the commitment is you do them all, unless, you, you know, unless you're ill or something, but you try to commit to doing them all. Because one event is just fun, but 12 events I think will change you. It will transform you, I've seen this. It's the same with atheism for Lent. Uh, it's a big commitment. Every day for 40 days you get a reflection or a painting or a piece of philosophy to read or a film to watch. But the idea is if you push through, I think it will, you'll find yourself changed. Again with the Advancement Project, these are all designed, they're technologies, they're not just kind of fun nights out, they're, they're designed to, uh, you know, rupture and reconfigure. So uh, yeah, I don't do them myself at the moment, I need to set up a community in LA, but um, I'm, I'm holding back for some reason. I think it's because I know how much work it is, and um, I, you know, I travel a lot, and uh, it would be hard to do it, but anyway, I'm sorry, I'm telling you, why do you care? Um, uh, da -da -da. Let's see. Pete, are you talking about decentering or false selves to become more true present, or decentering or true selves, or both? That is, am I saying it right, Jappy? Jappy buys? Yeah, cool. I don't, I don't, I always pronounce things incorrectly. I'm not sure where that name comes from, actually. I'd be interested in knowing. Um, yeah, I, I want to problematize this idea, yes, of, of, a, of a true self. That beneath the false self, there is a true self. Now, in, in a way, I want to say there is a type of true self. But the true self, and I talk about this in my next book, if I ever finish it, my forthcoming book, um, is that in a sense, if, if one wants to talk about what is the true self, the true self is that there is no self. Like the cure is there is no cure. The true self is in a sense coming to terms with the arbitrary nature of selfhood. Now, I don't go with the Buddhist idea, I like Buddhists and all that, but I don't go with the idea that the ego is an illusion. Or I do, but it's a necessary illusion. Um, uh, in the sense of like, there is a sense of self, a sense of me, a sense of I, but Anxiety is the name that is given to the sense that we are not at one with ourselves. That there is something about being human that where we're always, um, our centrifuge is always being thrown off balance. We're always, we're never, we're, there's, there's a lack of harmony, a certain chaos in existence. And what, we, what the challenge is, is to, co to 
come to a sense of peace amidst that challenge. Now, if you've been following my work for a while, you'll know that, because I say that in various different ways. That in a sense, the, you know, I talked about the rebel in the, in the last Facebook Live who is satisfied in their dissatisfaction. There's something about, about um, you know, don't, don't ever think that we get to this whole harmony where we kind of bleed into oneness with the divine and, you know, we don't need to eat Cheerios and, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that in a sense, struggle is part of existence, but we can change how we perceive struggle and enjoy it. Just like doubt, you know, doubt was where I started with my work. I didn't try to get rid of it. I didn't try to say it's a necessary evil or something. I just said, what if doubt is not negative? Because we often experience it as negative. What if it's positive? What if it's wonderful and beautiful? So, you know, all we did and all I tried to do is change how we perceived the doubt that already exists within us. You know, so we change our stance towards it. Um, yeah, so anyway, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, Oh yeah, Jappy is from South Africa, very cool. My friend Phil Harrison wrote a movie, it was half in South Africa, half in Belfast, because he spent a lot of his uh, life in South Africa. It's called The Good Man, it's very good if you can watch it. I enjoyed it. Um, he's now he's written his first book of fiction, got a big deal for it, and um, I'll tell you more about that when it comes out. Yes, love the, Mary says she loves the chair. It's not my chair, Sally. It's my friend's chair, but it's an amazing chair. It's very comfortable, very nice. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, as I say, if you want to pick this up on eBay or something, Knight and Squire. It's quite funny. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think captures the idea of suspended space in, in, a, in a quite a powerful way. In fact, I might even include it in my Atheism for Lent. One of the days might be just reading this comic book. All right, take care of yourselves and I'll uh, check in with you again soon. Bye-bye.